Try to make everybody happy. Well, good morning, and we know that many tombs of various religious leaders all over the world are visited and venerated. Take, for example, Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Uh, his temple is in Medina, Saudi Arabia. We know that Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, his temple is in Nauvoo, Illinois, and various Roman Catholic per, uh, popes throughout the centuries uh, whose tombs are in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and various catacombs. But all those faithful followers or adherents will readily admit that these men have died. Their remains were um, carefully put together and put into a tomb. However, don't look for Jesus in his tomb because he is risen. Just to show you because I'm going to explain why I'm saying this. All the Gospels, including Paul and Peter's writings, speak of the resurrected Christ. Just give you one verse from each Gospel. Matthew 28, the angel said to the women, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Mark 16, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Luke 24, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And probably one of my favorites is John 20, 27. You know, the disciple Thomas, that's why he was called Doubting Thomas, was, um, you know, if, if I can't see the holes and, and the wounds that were made, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus comes up to him, and he basically goes up to Thomas and shows him his wounds. And most likely the crucifixion was put through the uh, carpal bones, crushing the median nerve, causing a lot of pain. And he showed Thomas, he palpated his wound. He also showed him, take your finger here and put it in my side. The uh, wound that was made by the um, Roman soldier who thrust it through Jesus' side, most likely puncturing the lung, puncturing the pericardium around the heart, releasing the fluid that was there because of all the stress that he endured, releasing blood and water. And he had Thomas palpate that wound. And Jesus said to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Dr. Norman Geisler, who's a very brilliant man, took a poll of the Evangelical Theological Society. Now, just by its name, you would think that these are the good guys, the vanguards of good doctrine. But he found that 11% of them believed in some type of neo-orthodoxy. In other words, the whole bodily resurrection, it's negotiable. And we covered the Telegraph in the UK, their poll, that 33% of England's clergy disbelieve in the resurrection. My question is, are they reading the same Bible as we are? Did they see that in the scripture? I mean, they are theologians. Are they reading the Bible at all? Now, this is where it gets weird because they find that these same polls, okay, find when you ask the question, do you believe that the Bible is God's inerrant, inspired word? And the numbers plummet now down to the 40 percentages. So that's pretty frightening. Uh, that's what's going on here. And the other thing is that I, I saw a segment on, um, John Stossel did a segment on junk science. And he basically said you can, it's very easy to manipulate the populace. 
by using big words and you know deceiving them and frightening them so what he did was he hit, took his camera crew and he went out on the street and what he did was he filmed this and had a petition to remove this horrible compound called dihydrogen monoxide and he said dihydrogen monoxide causes birth defects it's bad for the environment it makes people sick it can hurt our children will you sign this petition with me to get rid of this dihydrogen monoxide and the overwhelming majority of the people signed this pet petition does anybody here know what dihydrogen monoxide call it out wow that's great i guess you couldn't have fooled you if he came through here but here's the problem few in our society do their homework on simple things like that what's even sadder is the most important human event in human history the resurrection now well, I saw it on TV so 10 people watch 10 different channels and they get 10 different ideas about the resurrection instead of doing the research themselves the single most important event in human history which will determine by the way where you go for eternity it's that simple those of us who have done our homework know that the creator of life gave up his life so that we could have eternal life ponder that the creator of life gave up his life so that we could have eternal life and let me just say this because if we don't have our head screwed on straight about this subject okay and God has planted us in this community we're not gonna make a difference out there we might as well take off the cross remove the dove put that thing in the closet or give it away and become a social club because without that non-negotiable tenet of fundamentalism that we believe in, in our faith, we're not going to make a difference. So what I'd ask you to do is uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul's writing to the Corinthians. The Apostle Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believe in vain for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures graphe had spoken twice what are we talking about here was the old uh, the new testament codified at this point in time no it wasn't he's speaking about the old testament that the f the facts of the resurrection have been prophesied so any prophet who comes on the scene in at a later date the old testament doesn't refer to them unless they're false prophets right so we see this in, in the Old Testament, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. We know that these things speak about Christ's substitutionary death. Hosea 6 and Matthew 12, referring to the book of Jonah and Psalm 16, speak about the coming resurrection of the Christ. Verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep or euphemistic for have died after that he was seen by James then by all the Apostles and last of all he was seen by me also as one by one born out of due time witnesses very important we know that the believers saw the resurrected Christ but we also know that there were some historians Roman Greek historians speak about Josephus Flavius 
Tacitus, Thallus, you know, do a little research, you can find these things. Not only did they speak about Jesus as a historical figure, so we know he existed, but even Josephus Flavius uh, said in one of his works that uh, I, there was a man called uh, Christ, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he did great signs and wonders. So even this non-believer, this Roman historian is saying, I don't even know if I should call him a man, although I'm not a believer, you should have seen the stuff that this guy did. So we know that Jesus existed, we know that he did miracles, we know he claimed to be God. What's the logical conclusion there? Right? He's our savior. His detractors have been trying for 2,000 years to find the body because that's the only way to discredit the resurrection. And it hasn't happened. I mean, we've, we've got these theories, or we don't, but there's, the world has these theories about what would have happened and why he didn't rise from the dead. And this is how weak they are. One theory is the swoon theory, where he was scourged to the point where he, hypovolemia, he loses so much blood that he starts to go into shock. He can't carry his cross to the hill. They, they put these spikes in his, in his wrists, something like this, but bigger, right through his wrists, right through his ankles, and then he's speared by the Roman centurion, and he dies. And they're saying that he was taken off the cross, and he really faked his resurrection, and they put him in the tomb and rolled this large stone, and I've seen this... Um, archaeological channels, how they still have those stones. They're about this high, and they're, they're like a big wooden or a big stone donut. And they roll it over the hole. So Jesus, after all this, just kind of gets up and he cleans himself up a little bit and he ro rolls this 2,000 pound stone out of the way and says, Hey, I resurrected. Anyone who takes simple um, medicine or anatomy and physiology knows that that's ridiculous. That's the best that they can offer. Instead, witness upon witness has attested uh, to Jesus Christ to seeing his rising from the dead. And witnesses were very important to Jewish and Roman culture because they didn't have CSI back then, right? <laughs> Verse 9. Again, the Apostle Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is a humble testimony by the Apostle Paul. We know that before he was persecuted, he was a persecutor. He went after the church. He gave his consent to killing Christians, right? And uh, all of a sudden, he has a changed life. But what's really neat is you can see the Apostle Paul understanding the grace that was shown to him. And grace is understood as unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve uh, the Son of God coming down from heaven, taking the form of a man, and dying that substitutionary death and spilling his blood for us. He didn't deserve that. And that was wrong for that to happen to him. But he did it because of his love for us. And we don't deserve it in a good way. That's why it's called grace. You see, um, very interesting concept. You realize that the, there's only one time in eternity that the Son of God would have that burden of those sins thrust upon him. Only once in eternity, never to happen again, right? But we know that those of us who are saved understand the grace that we were saved and, and understand how good that is. But the Apostle Paul recants or he recounts his life formerly of, before becoming an apostle. And his life has dramatically changed. And we see the disciples, even in the scripture, ready to pack it up after Jesus died and was buried. 
We see that Jesus' brothers didn't even believe until after the resurrection. And then both of them wrote uh, letters that were canonized as sacred, sacred scripture. You see, when you tap into the power of the resurrected Christ, you can't help but have your life change. And for anyone here, that life change is available to all of you, to all of us. Now, it doesn't mean that your problems are magically going to go away. It doesn't mean that we receive Jesus because our, our marriages are automatically overnight going to get better. Or Jesus is going to heal us of every affliction we may have. But what it means is that we now have that power, right? That power of the Holy Spirit. The power of having victory in Christ, which we're going to come to at the end of this letter. And it's available. So my question is, what is it that you've come here with? There's a lot of new faces. I don't know who's saved and who's not saved. Only God knows the heart. Is it an issue with um, addictions? Are you just tired of being addicted? Is it a problem of having just a self-directed lifestyle, right? Is it a problem of rejection and abandonment issues? We all have some type of baggage that we carry around in this life. But isn't it time for a life-changing, powerful event to happen in your life and to continue to happen? The Lord offers us so much. And just to give you a quick analogy, uh, you know, we all walk on the path of life. And we're walking and we're walking. And then we eventually find out about God, either through preaching or through the Holy Spirit drawing us or through reading the Word of God. And now we make a decision. Do I continue on my path and ignore what I've seen? Or do I stop doing about face and change direction? And that's called repentance. And that's available, the Bible says, that God calls all men to repent, and all women. That's available to all of us, to repent, to say that my self-directed lifestyle is wrong. My sins are wrong, but Jesus Christ paid for my sins. And I want to trust him and believe in him as my Lord and Savior. And that's available to all of us. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised among, from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. How can anyone say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Christianity is negotiable? That is not on the bargaining table. Never will be. The Bible says that if, if there was no resurrection and Christ is not risen... It makes him a liar, or it makes him too weak to follow through on his promises, and a dead Savior can save no one. And if that's true, the biggest fools are the disciples, the apostles, and then the church leaders, the bishops, and all the way down the line. And ultimately, we're still dead in our sins, and we'll never see our loved ones again. So if there's no resurrection, and no accountability to a God, and no consciousness after death, I would say to you, feed your flesh. Let's all leave here and just go feed our flesh because it doesn't matter. When you die, there's no accountability. There's no consciousness. We all just flatlined. Why, why bother obeying any laws? Why not try to get over on as much as we can before we die? Because we're not, we're not guaranteed another day, right? Death doesn't just hit the elderly. It hits the young too. 
And, and that's what Paul's saying here. And I would say this, no sense in denying the flesh if the flesh is the only reality. But the truth is, it's not the only reality. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. 25, I want to bring this out into the Greek for a reason. Ego eimi hai anastasis kai hot zoe. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. That's beautiful. You see, and the reason why I bring it up is because I took Italian, I took Spanish, and then I took Greek. And, um, you know, a lot of these languages are similar because the verb is conjugated, which means that the suffix is changed to reflect the first person, second person, singular, plural. I don't want to get into a whole a grammar lesson here, but it would have been sufficient to have a me. But ego Amy is there. And you know what that is? That's a redundancy, but it also shows emphasis. It wasn't like, and this is how it comes out in the English, if you read it right. It wasn't like somebody said to Jesus, what are some of your names? Well, you know, the lion, the lamb, you know, I'm the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said it emphatically. Though a man believes in me, though he may die, he will live again. And that's important. And Jesus said that a few times in Scripture. I am. And that was the name that was only reserved for God. So Jesus is, is saying to us that he is God. Preachers who don't stand on the resurrection are false shepherds and deceivers and should not call themselves Christian. Verse 51. I'm going to skip uh, through to 51. The Apostle Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. I tell you a, mis a mystery, a secret, formerly unknown, but now revealed through God's word. We will be changed in a moment. The Greek word is atomos, where we get the word atom from, right? A, a very small sliver of division of time. We will all be changed in a split second, in a twinkling of an eye. As Jesus was raised in glory, we too shall be raised in glory. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And we know that the rapture to come is the whole harvest. So if you understand the Old Testament harvest cycles, the first fruits were first offered to God of the harvest. And then there would be the whole harvest, right? That would be harvested. And then you would have the gleanings. So if Jesus decides to interrupt human history again soon, that's his decision, Prior to any of us dying of natural causes, if we are in Christ, we become raptured. 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, some have a problem with that word because it was transliterated from the uh, Latin. But the Greek word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4 is harpazu. A rose by any other name will still smell as sweet. It's a violent snatching away. At the trumpet blast, the Lord will come, appear in the clouds of the air, and remove us from the earth. Okay, that's pretty fantastic. Either way, death is defeated through the cross. We know that. And I don't have to do funerals anymore, and that's awesome. Revelation 21.4, there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying, for the former things have passed away, and this is what we get to look forward to. 
right? And verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see that in Romans 6.23. The strength of sin is the law. That sounds ridiculous. Well, let me give you an example. I got up this morning and I wanted to look presentable. So I went to a physical mirror and it showed me physically what I look like. My hair was disheveled. I could use to brush my teeth and fix myself up a little bit, put my tie on straight. Uh, so physically, I get to see where I fall short so that I can fix myself and look presentable. There's another mirror, and it looks at more than just the physical, and it's called God's Word. You see, this book right here, God's Word, when I lift up this book, and I hold it up to my face, and I read it, I realize that I fall short. The strength of sin is the law. When I look at the law, I see that I do not measure up time and time again. And that's what gives sin its strength because it convicts me and it condemns me, right? It is only through Jesus Christ and passing through the blood of Christ that now I am healed and the sin has no more power over me and death has no more power over me. We cannot keep the law but Christ is not done by good works. Christ's death and resurrection is the core of what we believe as Christians and accomplish so many things, notwithstanding unity. I'm going to read just um, three verses in Galatians 3. Galatians 3.26. Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I believe it's appropriate to kind of digress to another thing that Christ's resurrection did this day. Why? Why are we here today? Why are we here today in this building? Well, the First Baptist Church of Jamesburg had a need, but they had resources. Calvary Chapel of Crossfields also had resources, but we also had a need. And God put us together. Now, we live in an, uh, an era that there's so many Christian denominations. There was more denominations than flavors of ice cream, right? And everyone knows, the experts will tell you, that you do not mix two dissimilar fellowships because of the idiosyncrasies that separate us. However, based on what I read in Scripture, I believe, it's not, I know this, I don't even have to speculate, that when we go to heaven, there is no Calvary Chapel section. There is no Baptist section. There is no Methodist section. It doesn't exist. We are all one in Christ. And wouldn't it be something if we could come together here and emulate what God has for us in eternity, right? And what an example that would set for those around us who watch us and say it's never going to work. Right? Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? And maybe it'll catch on. From this day on, I don't expect to hear us and them, ever. I expect to hear we collectively. See, even this fellowship, I know that I could rattle off the name of 10 different backgrounds that even my assistant pastor comes from a Christian missionary alliance and we work very well together. It doesn't matter because our focus and what brings us together, the glue that holds us together is Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Even the Jews back then, 2,000 years ago, it's, it's even more splintered now. 
They were divided up into the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes and the Herodians and the list goes on and on and on. But at, at Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection, many were brought together by God's Holy Spirit. If I just turn to Acts real quickly, Acts 2, 9 through 11. These are the different types of folks that came in for the feast and stayed. And uh, this is the diversity that was there when 3,000 souls were added to the church. They were Parthians, and they were Medes, and they were Elamites, dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, from Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the ports of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. It says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. What's more fantastic about that than what's happening here today is the fact that what I read was not just somebody's ethnicity, but it was their geographical difference. It was their cultural difference. It was their language difference. Today, we're all here, probably the majority of us are Americans or American citizens. Back then, they brought all these people together under the umbrella of Christ's resurrection and his Holy Spirit. It's fascinating. Love it. The resurrection brings us together. It doesn't splinter us. So what do we do with this newfound unity? Well, let me just read the last two verses. Today's going to be a short message because you know what? The air conditioning's not working well. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We just have to set it earlier the next time. But this is a simple message. It, it, there's no, re no reason to belabor the point. There's only two more verses left. It's a simple message. Jesus is risen. And that's why we celebrate, right? And that's why we come together. Last two verses. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I actually wanted to wanted to talk a little bit briefly about history as we wrap it up and then run into this. See, the Apostle Paul, and I've said this before, in the first century, the Roman world looked very much different than what we see outside, very, vastly different 2,000 years ago. And often what would happen is was men of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would take something that everyone could understand because they saw it every day and make a spiritual analogy to it. That's actually called a parable. In Greek, it means to cast alongside. So... In those days, this is what you would see. Let me just give you a little bit, of, um, little bit of background. There was a phalanx formation where we get the word phalanges from in the fingers, the bones in the fingers, that the Sumerians adopted and then the Greeks made better and then the Romans perfected. And this phalanx formation was a military formation where soldiers would get together and they would blade themselves and they would take up the shields and they would lock their shields together. And depending on where you were from, you might have put out a sword or spears over top. But they, they locked together and they moved as a unit. The Romans also took the cleats or the sandals and they would put iron studs through them. They would call the caligae. And what would happen is if you bladed yourself, you would dig that cleat into the ground so you could not be moved back. Oftentimes opposing forces with this formation would end up in a shoving match. And the one that could break through the, the lines and exploit that weaknesses, they would probably win that battle. As a matter of fact, you know, 
the Battle of Pydna was a decisive battle between the Greeks and the Romans because the Romans were able to exploit that formation and then get in and then uh, make a mess of the, of the hoplites, so to speak. In the scripture, Paul tells us to be steadfast. Now, I just looked up some synonyms. It means to be firm, to be fixed, established, not fickle or wavering. There's too much of that in the body of Christ today. It's a positive action. I'm fixed on Christ and nothing can deter me from achieving his goals. Like those warriors, they would move forward in, in lockstep and they would, you know, they would move forward and not to be stopped. He also says to be immovable or unyielding, unemotional, impassive, can't be changed. It's a negative action. I will resist every force that tries to push me in the wrong direction. I'm going to hold my ground so there's no compromise in the line. Always abounding, he says, in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Are you looking for purpose? Don't look any further than this book. There's no better purpose than to be on the winning team. You see, because of the resurrection, we can have victory in Christ, and we can have victory in our lives. Believers who don't have victory in their lives need to go before the Lord and ask Him what that means and how to meditate on that, because it is available not to some of us, the Bible says, but to all of us. Victory, success, winning, what do these things mean? I just got my uh, recent periodical of Voice of the Martyrs. It talks about the uh, persecution overseas and I just came in the mail and the first page Tom White actually who was in a, held in a Cuban prison for many years for giving out Bibles and, and giving out the gospel um, is now back in uh, the United States and he went over to Iran where there's a lot of turmoil believe it or not there's a church in Iran and it's thriving and it's multiplying however the authorities are so dead set against it that they're slaughtering and, and people and blood is running in the streets of Tehran so amidst all the chaos, uh, Tom White asked the question of some of these Iranian Christians who he's gathered with. He said, what does it mean for you to win? What does it mean for us as Americans? What does it mean for us as individuals? What does it mean to be successful, right? I asked, I mean, to win in life, what is a win? He goes on to say, it looked like many of their friends out in the streets were losing. This was a losing battle in Iran for the Christians. Smiling, the entire group in a burst of sound shouted one word, salvation. So again, what we look at in America versus how the church looks at life over there is vastly different. Salvation. They could lose their homes, their jobs, their lives, their loved ones, but they will not move. They will not be moved. The Apostle Paul says, none of these things move me. Okay? Now, again, does that mean that we're, do you think I don't have any problems in my life? That's not what it means. It means, like I said in prayer today, that when we go through the storms of life, they may not all be taken away from us, but we will be able to have gear to be able to weather those storms, and God will be with us. And if we know that God is with us, who can be against us, the Bible says, right? I mean, why are we here today? I got to tell you, nobody loves chocolate Easter bunnies as much as I do. <laughs> and my son knows that when he gets chocolate, to hide it from his dad, because I'll look for it. But imagine being a fly on the wall when Jesus opened his eyes on the third day and got up and just walked out of that tomb victoriously, resurrected bodily in glory. Imagine being there at that time. Wow, that should give us chills. We're not called to live a glum, ho-hum, defeated existence. 
God calls us to have victory because of Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be in the scripture if it wasn't meant. And I'm not here to condemn, I'm here to exhort you. If we're finding that we've lost our way, maybe we need to come back to God and spend some time with Him and ask Him what it means to have victory in our lives. Jesus claimed victory on the cross before He gave up the ghost, the Bible says. That looks ridiculous from our point of view, but He knew what was going to happen, right? Let us live a life like we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that offers victory to all of us. And with that, let us go out into the community and see what God will have us do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your, your word.